And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Uh, If you will turn in a copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, that's on page 1,252 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, We have several copies on the table outside the back double doors, and feel free to either get up one, grab one now if you'd like, or or grab one on the way out. This morning, we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse uh, 24. Let's stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we we pray that this text would just leap off the the pages by your Spirit and change us. Uh, We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Now please be seated. You know, Paul ministered in a whole bunch of different kinds of contexts and towns, uh, different kinds of churches. Uh, You know, while none of them were mega churches by our definition... Certainly, the ones in Corinth and uh, Ephesus would have been fairly sizable simply because of the importance of those cities of Corinth and Ephesus. They were some of the lead, when we think of like Los Angeles and New York, Chicago, big cities, that's kind of what they were in the Roman Empire. The church, however, that he's writing to in Colossae was not one of those large churches in a large town. Rather, it was just like ours a smaller congregation in a small town. You know, there's an unwritten rule at General Assembly, and that's you don't ask how many members someone else's church has. Uh, And it's an unwritten rule because you can quickly go into a tailspin of either despair or pride. Well, yeah, my church is like Briarwood, you know, thousands of members, and look what you got. You know, or, or... I could never compare to your church. It can become this, this, this one, one-upsmanship. Now, some people forget this rule, and, and I've just been known to walk away from those kind of uh, conversations. God bless you. Just walk away. The, the reality is that these kinds of questions, the presupposition of, of you know, those kind of questions of, of you know, tell me about your church, how many members do you have, what kind of programs do you have, do you meet Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, what kind of Bible studies do you have, how many discipleship groups? They're all based on the presupposition that more is better, that larger is better, that bigger programs and more exhaustive volunteers really really are signs of God's work amongst you, and that the value, worth, and efficacy of a church is dependent on those things. And let me just tell you, none of that's true. None of that's true. See, the first Presbyterian churches of Colossae and Bruton 
We will never be like Trinity Church Montgomery that I grew up in, 1,500 members. Right? We'll never be like Briarwood, uh, also known as Briar World, in, in Birmingham. Wonderful, godly, amazing church with I don't, like three to 5,000 members. It's a rounding error. Or maybe not even like larger churches in our area. And guess what? That's okay. That's okay. The, the world of, of upsizing everything. You know, of, we live in a day where they no longer sell a small size at, uh, at, at restaurants. You can't order small, only medium. Isn't that strange? Doesn't medium then become small? But we, we've, we've gotten rid of the idea of small because small is bad. But not to Jesus. Small towns matter. Small town churches matter. Because they matter to Jesus. He delights in you. He delights in our congregation. Because he's working in us. And he has, our Savior has died for First Presbyterian Church of Bruton. And every other small town, small church. You know, if we think about Paul's ministry of church planning and evangelism, there were certainly many aspects of it. The, the Lord uh, blessed him uh, with signs and wonders at different parts of his ministry. Surprisingly, actually, if you look at it, it's, it seems to be at the beginning of his ministry. As you get towards the end of the writings of the New Testament, if you look at them chronologically, signs and wonders start kind of fading away because they were meant to point to the teaching of the Word and to bring it, uh, bring it all to um, validity. Uh, a seal of approval on it, a stamp of this is real. The Lord did great things for him. Paul spent time talking about how the church is to be governed and how to care for widows. But, but the, central, uh, the central focus of his ministry was one thing, and it was the proclamation of the Word of God. It was the proclamation of the good news that there is salvation to be found in Jesus. See, the thing is, the, the thing that makes Briarwood a great church, the thing that makes First uh, 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 Trinity Church Montgomery a great church, and the thing that makes us a great church, is we all have the one thing that we need. And that's the Word of God. Right? We're never, we may not have the programs that, that Trinity does, but I think they have more staff than we have members. Right? I mean, let's, just, let's just be fair on that one. But we have the Word of God. We have everything we need. Paul considered the ministry of the Word of God so important that he actually rejoiced that he was having to suffer for it. Verse 29, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. We should remember that Paul was writing to the Colossian church and to us uh, while he was imprisoned in Rome. It had been a rough journey from Jerusalem to Rome, actually involving several years, uh, some really hard time in jail in different places, even being shipwrecked, uh, being bitten by a snake. He had this season of great fruitful ministry in Malta. Then he's chained back up and sent to, to Rome, and, and now he's back in prison. And yet, he rejoices in the suffering that he is going through because of his ministry of the proclamation of the Word of God. You'll also remember that, that Paul did not plant the Colossian church. In fact, he had never met most of them. He had never visited this church. Instead, it was planted, it was started by someone who was converted under his ministry when he was serving in Ephesus, a man named Epaphras. Now, let me ask you something. 
if you're writing a letter to people who don't know you, and you're in a Roman prison, what's your letter going to be about? I would imagine you would, I know I would, talk a lot about like, hey, this is really bad. Let me tell you about all the stuff I'm going through. Yeah, I might get to you in a minute, but, but I, I'm probably going to talk about what I'm going through. And yet that's not what Paul does. Paul rejoices over the fact that he is suffering for Jesus and for the Colossians' sake. Because in doing so, the Word of God is actually continuing to go forth. Paul wrote not only Colossians from uh, prison, but also other books, including Philippians. Uh, When we read and we get a little more of his biographical information in Philippians, this is what he would write in the same season of his life to the Philippian church. In in Philippians 1, 12, and 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is imprisonment, has uh, really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. How could he rejoice in his sufferings? Because the gospel was going out. People's lives were being transformed. And God had to send Paul to a Roman prison in order for a certain group of people to know about Jesus. And that's why Paul is able to say, hey, I rejoice in this. Because it means the gospel is going out. The word of God is being preached. It's being heard in places that have never heard it. The light and salt is going forth. And people's lives are being transformed. We have been called to Bruton, to East Bruton, to Carolina, to Andalusia, uh, unincorporated middle of nowhere. Some of y'all people drive a good ways and God has called us to this area in order to see the gospel, the word of God go forth and transform our community. And Paul went through suffering in order for the communities to which he was sent. He had to suffer in order for that to happen. And sometimes God calls us to suffer too. Sometimes God calls us to suffer in order that the word of God might go forth. And just like how Paul suffered led to to a witness for the Lord, so too we are called to suffer well that others may see in us this hope we have and ask us the reason for it. See, he was suffering for Jesus, but he also says that he was suffering for the sake of the Colossians. When we suffer for the Lord and especially suffer well... The Lord is glorified, and He uses it to bless others with spiritual blessings and growth and grace. Paul picks up on this theme in Philippians 1, 14, where he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, Paul, in his um, example of suffering well for the advancement of the gospel, actually emboldened other believers in Rome who were afraid, who feared the persecution that would come their way if they opened their mouths and talked about the Lord. I mean, they they put Paul in prison. Why won't they put me in prison? But as they saw Paul do well and, and continue to speak about the Lord, it actually emboldened them. It gave them courage. God has helped Paul in his sufferings. He will help me if I'm called to suffering as well. The Colossian church would have been emboldened. Here is a man whose um, stamp of validity, someone who's willing to suffer for their cause, it adds a lot of uh, weight to what they say, doesn't it? They're not just saying it from the ivory tower. 
Paul wasn't saying it from the ivory tower. He, he was saying it from uh, house arrest with a Roman guard chained to him. Don't you feel sorry for that Roman guard? I mean, day in and day out, he heard the gospel. And I, I imagine at some point he was ready for, that time, for, for the uh, change of, uh, of guard, wasn't he? It's like, man, all he talks about is Jesus. But the imperial guard all heard about the Lord. Maybe the Lord converted some. People who were close to Caesar. All through Paul suffering well. May the Lord help us to suffer well for the advancement of the gospel. That others might see and be emboldened and come to know Jesus. There's this rather difficult phrase in verse 24 that's given commentators a lot of job security. And they've just written on it ad nauseum. Uh, And it's this phrase, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What does that mean? Does it mean that Christ's afflictions, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that it wasn't enough and now Paul has to add to it or now we have to add to it? No, of course it can't do that. Great principle is you read the harder passage of Scripture through the easier passages of Scripture. And very simply, in John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus said some very important words on the cross. He said, it is finished. Right? There's nothing else to be added. It is finished. The suffering, his suffering for your sin, my sin, to pay the penalty, it's done. There's nothing else to add to it. So, so Paul can't be speaking of adding something to the redemptive suffering of Jesus. It's already been taken care of at the cross. Well, what's he talking about? I defer here to a commentator who I think is right. The enemies of Christ hated Jesus with insatiable hatred and wanted to add to his afflictions. But since he was no longer physically present, so they wanted to attack Jesus, but he wasn't there anymore. So who would they attack? So the arrows, and the, uh, the, the arrows which were especially meant for Jesus struck his followers. Christ's afflictions overflow toward us. They couldn't get to Jesus anymore, so they went after his followers. But you know, it's, it's comforting to Paul, or to us, it wasn't comforting to Paul at the time. Do you remember the, on the road to Damascus, what Jesus said to him? Why are you persecuting me, Jesus said. Now, Paul was on the road to persecute Jesus' followers. But Jesus so closely identifies with the persecution of his children, of his people, that he, for, he will say, if you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. See, Paul's suffering and persecution rose because of his dogged determination to preach and proclaim the word of God. Why? Why would he rejoice in suffering for this? It's because as the word of God went out, This is how people are saved and eternities are uh, transformed. You know, we do a lot of great things as a church. Uh, but, But they're all meant to be in the service of getting the Word of God out into our hearts to... to to grow those who are already Christians, and to to get the word out to those who don't know the Lord. So if Wednesday night meals went away, if our gorgeous building were to burn down, heaven forbid, if if our van went up in flames, uh, if all the extras that we get to enjoy as as this church, our facility, our gym, if all that went away and we still had the word of God, we would have everything we need. We have everything we need. 
Because the, the, the Lord, by the Spirit, working through the Word is what transforms us, changes us from one degree of glory to the next. If Paul could preach from a prison, if Paul could preach from a prison, as long as we have the Word, we have everything we need. That is our strength. In verse 25, we also see that Paul's commitment to the Word was for a specific reason. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. Christ had given Paul a specific task and it was to make the Word of God fully known. Now, he had conveyed this message to Paul through Ananias in Acts 9. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knew from the beginning that he was going to have to suffer. But he uses here a specific word of stewardship. Now, a steward is entrusted with the administration of an estate, a task, or a property, right? An owner will own it, but a steward is the one who manages it as if it was his own, but it's not his, it belongs to another. Uh, okay, here's an example. Uh, say you go to the doctor and you say, yeah, the doctor gave me a shot. Let me ask you something. Have you ever gotten a shot from a doctor? One time I asked for a, do- a shot from a doctor and he said, you don't want me to give you a shot, let me get a nurse. It's the same thing. Paul, a nurse might be the steward of the shot that belongs to the doctor. Paul was a steward of the gospel of salvation that belongs to God. And God had given him this important task of stewardship that he was called to administer. And he wasn't supposed to keep it to himself. He had been called to proclaim it, to teach it. The word of God might be fully known. As an apostle, he actually had extra authority. There aren't apostles anymore, by the way. If someone calls themselves an apostle, they're they're wrong. Apostles died out in the first century. We know that because they were never replaced. The only one that was ever replaced was Judas, and that was with Matthias. That was a one-time thing, and we know that because none of the other ones were replaced. When, When Paul goes and he goes to these churches, he does not appoint apostles. He appoints elders. Um, But Paul had a special kind of authority. As an apostle, he had the stewardship of the gospel, and he got to go into these places and say, thus saith the Lord. It was a prophetic use of his office, too. See, he wrote parts of the Word of God, 13 books in the New Testament. So Paul was entrusted with this stewardship of making known fully the Word of God. Now, let me say that, that we are not apostles, but we have a task, too. We have been entrusted with the same task, and that is to get the Word of God out. What do we preach here? Hopefully, Jesus. If you hear me something preach something else, go tell an elder. It is their job to guard this pulpit. We proclaim Jesus because that is our hope and our only hope. We don't proclaim ourselves. We don't say, hey, look how clever we are. Look how we have it all together because none of those things are true. We are here to proclaim Jesus. This is what Paul did. Paul says that when he was with them in Corinth, I've got it here somewhere, he came he, let's see, um, here it is, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him, him crucified. That is the focus of the Word of God. And we are called, as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission, to share in this stewardship of the Word of God, to go forth 
uh, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I hope that when you travel, you worship with God's people from other communities. It's such a blessing. I've had the opportunity to worship in different countries. In Kenya, uh, a, a church that you could see through the walls. Uh, it was made out of, uh, of vines woven together in order to make a wall. The church had paid for the money for the tin roof from America. I had an opportunity to, to worship in China a couple times at a church and met in a theater of believers from all over the world. You actually could not be a Chinese national and go to this, this church. And so you got to worship with people just from all over. I've worshipped in high Anglican churches in, in England. I've, I've worshipped in Jamaica. Uh, I can still smell the church in Jamaica. right? And you know what they all had? It wasn't electricity. It wasn't running water. What do they have? The word of God. That's what they had. And therefore, they had everything they needed for life and for godliness. Because this is how God works in our lives and our communities. The word of God. Well, Paul continues to describe his ministry to the Colossian church in 26 and 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul calls, uh, part of his call as a minister, as a steward, was to make the word of God fully known, which he included. Included in this was this idea of mystery. I, I love mystery novels. I grew up reading them, I, I still like them. Uh, where you have to, you know, the whodunit, you have to figure it out. Something's hidden, and unless you work hard, you'll never know. That's not the kind of mystery here. Biblically, when we read mystery, it is something that has been revealed or was partially concealed and now has been made known, has been revealed to us. We don't have to work hard for it. He tells us right here. This mystery, he's going to include several different things. First, he identifies it in verse 26 as, this mystery, comma, which is Christ in you. Chapter 2, verse 2, the knowledge of God's mystery, comma, which is Christ. I think we have a fuller definition of it in Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The picture we get is that the mystery is Jesus as the Messiah. He was pointed to the Old Testament but it was, it was kind of unclear what this was going to look like. And, and now he's here. And he's achieved salvation for you and me. But secondly, I think contextually this is what it's talking about, is that his great plan of redemption included not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. That he was including into his church people of every different race and tribe and language and tongue. There was nobody that was going to be excluded if they responded to the call of salvation. Now, we actually have a, a friend who's been doing some genealogical research in my family, and it turns out like seven generations ago, I have some Jewish blood in me, we think. So you Gentiles, <laughs> I'm glad that, that, that Jesus came to save you too. So in the Old Testament, there was this hint that Jesus was going to come and, and, the, and the Gentiles would be included. 
But just how far God would go was not seen until Christ came. And now, by this point in, uh, in church history, the, uh, the primary sending churches are no longer Jewish. They're actually of Gentile descent. And those who used to hate each other now are together, one in Christ Jesus. What great news. That sounds just like Jesus, doesn't it? Sounds just like Jesus to do something big and unexpected and further than what we could ever ask or imagine. When Paul would show up in these Gentile lands as a missionary, especially to the Gentiles, what was his strategy? You know, he didn't get on, he didn't start advertising six months ahead. He didn't consult with marketing professionals. What did he do? He simply preached the word of God, which is powerful and living and active as it points us to our Savior. You know, as we think about, um, as we think about Colossians and we think about it being written to a small town church, uh, small town churches are important because you are important to Jesus. You are important to Jesus. And Paul showed up in towns and he preached the word of God and people's lives were transformed. That's how he works in our situation too. In verse 28 we read, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul proclaimed Christ, may we do the same. He didn't proclaim himself, nor should we. He wanted Christ to have all the glory. May that be the theme of our song. He didn't want the attention. Let us put the attention on Jesus. He came proclaiming the word of God as he taught and he warned This was part of his task, to teach, to instruct, but also when he saw people in sin, to call them to repentance, to preach from the pulpit hell, to preach from the pulpit the fact that we need Jesus lest we stand before God on the day of judgment without the blood of Christ, without an advocate. That was Paul's call, and it is our call as well. And I think increasingly it's going to lead to suffering. That's just going to happen. May we rejoice when that suffering comes. But his goal here was not so that everyone could just get saved and then just do their normal life. He didn't want people to stay spiritual babes. Rather, his desire as a pastor, as a steward of God's grace and the word, as an apostle, was to see those under his ministry mature spiritually. He says that we, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Well, finally, how did he do it? You know, this is a task that none of us are up to. Not a single one of us. Especially your preacher. As we rely on our own strength, we will fail and we will fall because when we rely on our own strength, we're trying to get glory for ourselves. And God's not glorified by that. God wants all the glory. And that to which he calls us, he will equip us if we turn to him and ask for it. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. As Paul went forth, he was striving, he was struggling, he was toiling. These these words together mean um, toiling to the point of weariness and exhaustion. But he didn't rely on his own energy because that would have gotten him nowhere. He couldn't have the energy to be in prison as long as he was, to be shipwrecked, uh, to, to minister on Malta. 
to minister imprisoned in Rome. He didn't have that strength. None of us do. How did he do it? Jesus. As he relied on Jesus. See, that which God calls us to, he will give us the energy. That's, that's a strange word here, isn't it? But certainly if you're older, you understand it, don't you? You look at your grandchildren and say, I want that kind of energy again. That's the kind of energy he gives us for gospel extension. Because it's not our mission. It's his mission to see the word of God go forth. So how do we land this plane? Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. He's everything we need. And he is efficient. He's all we need to be saved. He actually does it. And he has given us his word He has given us His Word so that we might grow more and more spiritually mature. He has called us to proclaim the Word of the Gospel as a church. And everything we do, this is meant to be our focus. The the Word going forth as we minister to others in the name of Jesus. He is in the business of using the Word to bring people to salvation, especially in small churches and small towns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing gift of your word. And we thank you that you have blessed us with it. I pray that you would give us a desire to hide it in our hearts and to speak it on our lips. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.